The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Let me just ask, how good was last Sunday? Isn't Easter Sunday just the greatest? I, I know, I know. And, and inevitably, Easter Sunday is this high, and then there's always kind of this like Easter blues that follows. You feel kind of the post-Easter drag. But last Sunday was so good, and it is always so refreshing to worship together as the body of Christ on Easter Sunday. It is literally, I mean, it is my favorite day of the year. Easter Sunday is so great. And, and last Sunday, what we talked about was that Jesus' resurrection is this first taste of what he's going to do for all of God's people and what, it, and what God is going to do for all of creation when he restores and renews everything. We have this promise in the resurrection of this glorious future hope, the new heavens and the new earth where all sad things are made untrue. We sing of King Jesus, we sing of his power, the, the firstborn of the dead, and we say we're his siblings and where he goes, we go with him. We will be resurrected just like him. That's our hope. I mean, that is the Christian hope, that we will be resurrected from the dead one day. And it is such a joy to take a Sunday every year to just revel in it, right? Jesus is so good and kind, and it is so unbelievable that what he's done, he has done for you and for me. But what precedes Easter Sunday? What's the day that comes before Easter Sunday, or two days that come before, technically? We get to Easter through Good Friday, right? And what is Good Friday? Good Friday is the story of Jesus' arrest and betrayal and torture and death. The story of Jesus is cross, then resurrection, right? Listen to what Jesus says when he tells his disciples, as he's, he's letting his, his disciples in on God's plan for his life, that he's going to suffer, he's going to be put to death by the hands of the religious leaders. This is what Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus tells us that the call to discipleship, to follow after Jesus, is the call to what? To cross-bearing. The Christian life is cross-shaped, we might say. Or we might say the Christian life looks like Good Friday. It's Good Friday-shaped. Of course, what Jesus is saying here is it's not that we repeat Jesus' sacrifice or something like that. It's once for all for sin. But Jesus is clear that to follow in his steps, which is what every Christian is called to do, is to take up a cross and bear it like him. The Christian hope is Easter. The Christian life, well, it's Good Friday, we might say. Resurrection through crucifixion, life through death, glorification through humiliation, Easter through Good Friday, kingdom through tribulation. Now, we've been studying the book of Acts as a church family. We just, Harrison just read Acts chapter 14 for us. And the book of Acts is about the earliest church leaders, guys called the apostles, who were commissioned and empowered by the resurrected Lord Jesus to go make his name known to the ends of the earth. The book begins with Jesus' ascension, and it's got this promise that Jesus is going to pour out his Holy Spirit, and he's going to fling the apostles to the ends of the earth, and the book unfolds in exactly that way. The, the apostles have been flung to go tell the story of the crucified and risen king. His spirit comes and does exactly that. He flings them. Chapters 13 and 14 is Paul's first missionary journey, 
where Paul has been commissioned to go spread the good news of the gospel in these cities and the regions surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. And what we're going to see in this chapter, what we've already seen in this, this reading, is Paul is doing his very kind of Paul thing, making disciples and establishing churches. And then listen, as he's teaching and establishing a group of new Christians, we get insight into a crucial bit of teaching about the Good Friday shape of the Christian life. You with me? Let's read verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So again, we're in the the midst of this first missionary journey of Paul's, and he's been kind of in this region, kind of bouncing from city to city in this region just around the Mediterranean Sea. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks and chapters is this kind of shadow counter movement that's developed in response to Paul's missionary journey. These guys are essentially following Paul around and they're attempting to undo his work. And the passage that we looked at the week before Easter, they're working to poison Paul in the mind of his hearers. This like counter campaign that's intended to try and put a stop to the advance of the gospel. And it graduates from just poisoning minds and just opposition, challenging, challenging his credentials, it graduates from that to outright violence in this passage. Verse 19, it says that the Jews from the cities that Paul just left incite the crowd to stone Paul. Now, do you know what stoning is when the scriptures talk about, some of you are smiling, it's not that. <laughs> you know what stoning is in the scriptures when it, when it talks about someone being stoned? It's not grabbing, you know, bits of gravel and running someone out of town with bits of gravel, right? Stoning is where mobs would gather together large rocks and pelt and beat the victim until they died of blunt force trauma to the head, arms, legs, torso, right? It says that Paul is stoned by the the crowd that his, his opponents have incited. Paul is stoned, beaten to the point of being supposed dead, Then it says they drag him out of the city because that's what you do with an unclean corpse. Then it says the disciples, maybe they witness this, maybe they just hear about it. They go to check on Paul, probably supposing that he's dead too, but watch. It says in verse 20, the disciples gather up about Paul and he rises up and enters back into the city. It could be that something miraculous is at play here. It's not entirely clear. I mean, the fact that he's supposed dead, but is able to get up, go back into the city, and continue his mission the next day could imply some kind of miraculous healing. But regardless, here's the thing that we see that's important here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Just like the Lord Jesus, the one who has commissioned and empowered the Apostle Paul, Paul suffers. Paul suffers. Paul endures a beating and then is drug out of the city in a way that's actually very reminiscent of the Lord Jesus himself. And it's actually not just Paul. I mean, do you know the story of the apostles? Do we know what happens to each and every one of the apostles in the decades following Jesus' ministry and the decades following this event? They're persecuted and they're opposed and they're hated and they're exiled and they're put to death. I mean, have any of us read any church history or Christian biography? I mean, it is remarkable to me how often these kinds of suffering are the norm for the saints. I mean, one of the things about our our, our sort of modern kind of world is we can be so myopic about our faith and have such a small understanding of what Jesus has done historically and what he's doing 
all around the world in this church. And this is the story of Christians across history and all over the world, even today. I mean, this is not just the case for saints in the past, but all around the world today, there are brothers and sisters who are living these very scriptures. I mean, right now, there are Christians who are being run out of villages and homes, children of Christian parents who are orphaned, who are forced to sleep in the woods as Hindu radicals beat them and burn down their houses and burn down their churches and murder their brothers and sisters in Christ in Southeast India. There's pastors and Christians in prison all over China, all across Africa and Iran. I mean, this is not an anomaly. Just like the Lord Jesus, Paul suffers. Now watch this. I find this really amazing. A few decades after these events, later on in Paul's life, when folks are still working to discredit Paul, Paul says, who of my opponents has the credibility that I have? Watch what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll have it on the screen. Watch what he says about his credibility in Christ. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, can relate to that. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ Jesus? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. It's a, a, a night and day adrift at sea. That's like castaway stuff, right? I mean, that's amazing. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and in thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Paul says, to those who say, I'm a false teacher, that I'm not worthy, or that you can't trust my testimony, hear this, I have bled for this, Paul says. You see this scar? You see the scar? That's from the stoning at Iconium, Paul says. Or this scar here, this is with shipwreck at Malta, or this limp that you noticed that I have. That's from the time I was beaten, by, no, it was the other time that I was beaten by rods. I mean, Paul has, so, has suffered so intensely. In Galatians 6, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. My discipleship has scarred me, Paul says. Paul is living the Good Friday reality of the Christian life. Let's keep reading, verse 21. Then watch this. By the way, isn't it unreal that after Paul is stoned and he's drugged out of the city and he rises up, he goes back into the city and continues preaching? Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city in Derbe and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. So this was some of their previous stops. Paul is retracing his previous evangelistic stops to go back and continue beefing up and encouraging the disciples. Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Right, so Paul's retracing his steps and he's spending time with these young new Christians. He's teaching and he's working through the ins and outs of Christian discipleship. 
It says that he, he builds up and he establishes these healthy, faithful churches. In verse 23, it says that he appoints elders in every church. And then after prayer and fasting, he, he puts his hands, he, he hands the church over to the Lord, I should say, and he says something that I love. I mean, th- th- these are not my churches. These belong to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus will care for them through these appointed leaders. But here's what caught my eye in verses 19 and 20. How does he coach up these young Christians? What does he say to them? It says that he's spending time strengthening their souls. He's encouraging them to continue in their faith. And then, and then listen, this is what he says. That through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom. We enter the kingdom through tribulation, Paul says. Now, when Paul is talking about the kingdom here, what he's speaking of is the dawn of new creation. That's what we talked about last Sunday. It's the, the, the final return of Jesus when he ushers in his kingdom in the fullness of, of the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul says that the way that we enter into that, the way that we enter into the eternal Easter, let's say, is how? Through Good Friday, through tribulation. He's saying, listen, young Christian, the path ahead of you is not easy. Christian, the path ahead of you is not easy. And to me, that's just a helpful bit of realism from the Apostle Paul. It's always helpful to know when you're, when you're starting a new venture or you're starting a new job or whatever it might be, it's always helpful to know, you know, to, to have some realism about what you can expect about this new thing. It's always helpful to know what you're getting into. And Paul is teaching the same reality of discipleship that Jesus taught. It is kingdom through tribulation. If anyone would follow Jesus, you take up your cross and have at it. And I think that's really helpful for us to hear this morning as well, too. I mean, I know in this room we have folks who have been a Christian for, goodness, a long time. And there's folks who are being baptized tonight who are very much on the front end of this discipleship, right? There's others of us, you know, somewhere in between. But with confidence, what I think we can say to each Christian in this room is is the words of Paul the Apostle. It's this, Christian, the path ahead of you is not easy. Wherever you're at, On the discipleship runway, the path ahead of you is not easy. Maybe the tribulation that awaits us is persecution. Maybe it's the kind of hard persecution we see Paul enduring and suffering here. The kind of hard persecution you read about through organizations like the Voice of the Martyrs, if you're familiar. Or maybe it's soft persecution like we see elsewhere in Scripture. Like in the book of 1 Peter where these brothers and sisters are being ostracized or they're being kind of disinvited or excluded from their family because of their faithfulness to Jesus. Maybe you're ostracized for your views on sex and gender. And listen, friends, let's just have a ton of clarity on this. We are hated for our views on Christian sexuality and gender. Maybe we will experience soft persecution for our views on the teachings of the exclusivity of Jesus. I mean, the reality is every one of us will have to make decisions that will cost us things in our faithfulness to Christ. We will alienate friends and loved ones by our commitment to Jesus. And we don't respond in kind by no means. We love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us, be that hard or soft persecution. But our tribulations, tribulations are to be expected. Maybe the tribulation we experience is from the effects of the fall. It's from a broken body wasting away from a recent diagnosis. Maybe our tribulations are the pain of loss. It's saying goodbye to somebody way too soon. 
Or maybe the tribulations that we experience are the pain of taking up our cross and denying ourselves. Listen, we just need to hear this again, that Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him. Take it into consideration, the things you're going to have to give up to follow after me, Jesus says. It will cost our lives. It may cost your dreams. It may cost the life that you've planned for yourself. It may cost you everything. And, and, and I say this as a fellow pilgrim who is confronted with this reality, just as you are. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Maybe your tribulation looks like dying to yourself sexually in obedience to Jesus. And could this be more countercultural? I mean, our culture is about expressing ourselves, and Jesus is about death to self. There's just no softening or reconciling that truth. Maybe the call is dying to ourselves and choosing forgiveness and rejecting bitterness towards family members that have done you wrong. But Jesus calls you to die to yourself and forgive them. There's no softening or reconciling that. Maybe dying to yourself looks like receiving the hard marriage that you've been given as a gift from the Lord. The path ahead of you is not easy, Christian. We get kingdom, it's through tribulation, Paul tells us. And we need clarity on this because there are voices who, at best, minimize this aspect of the Christian life and, at worst, flatly, outright deny it. I mean, many of us are probably familiar with the health and wealth prosperity gospel, that God wants you rich, fat, and happy, right? And yes, God blesses us, and he has certainly granted some of that to to some of us. But to say that God's ultimate aim for us is wealth, it's like, how how are you going to break that to the Apostle Paul adrift at sea? But there's also a kind of therapeutic gospel that pleasure and happiness and freedom and inner peace is the goal, that happiness is the chief good, that suffering can't be tolerated and there's no place for the unpleasant. It's a gospel where Jesus is recast as a therapist who came to save us from a kind of inner or emotional turmoil. And he teaches us the way to actualize ourselves. But sometimes following Jesus means turmoil. And oftentimes we won't feel happy or whole or affirmed or healthy or like we're flourishing. We will not feel like we're being true to ourselves. Because the kingdom is through tribulation. Easter through Good Friday. Paul embodies it, he teaches it, and more than that, Jesus teaches it and embodied it for us. And it's so important for us to reflect on this because often when tribulations take place, we can think, what have I I done to deserve this? Like something must be wrong on my end to bring about these afflictions, this pressure. Or worse, we can think something's wrong on God's end for these tribulations and afflictions. What Paul is teaching these young Christians, he's he's like, look, I don't want you to have to wonder about this. I want you to understand what you've signed up for. Maybe you've had this experience. I remember when I was a kid, my older brother suffered a really nasty arm break. And this was a really kind of key moment of theological development for me. I was maybe seven or eight years old. I remember my mom weeping and my mom asking my dad, what have we done to deserve this? And my dad said, that is not how this works. That is not how this works. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he gives tribulation to his people. When we endure hardship and suffering, we wonder, where is God? Am I doing something wrong? Have I earned this? Am I living outside of God's will for me by experiencing this? But the reality is, is we enter the kingdom through tribulation. This is the path that Christ has called us to. Christian, it is not easy. And it makes perfect sense why in verse 22, what what does it say he tells them? 
He encourages them to continue in the faith. He encourages them to continue in the faith. Paul gives them and us a call to endurance in our tribulations. As I was reading this passage, something that stuck out to me was in Acts chapter 14, the word for tribulation there can also be interpreted something like pressure. If you've ever done jujitsu or wrestling, which I have not, you press somebody in the right spot, it makes them want to tap out, right? I mean, that's kind of the whole point, jujitsu and wrestling. Tribulations have a way of applying pressure and making us want to tap out. And this is what Paul is recognizing. And hear this. You will not find a stronger proponent of once saved, always saved than Trevor Nathaniel Hoffman. I will, I will die on that hill. But humanly speaking, you could walk away from the faith. The troubles and the pressure and the tribulations could choke you out. And Paul is just ripping off the band-aid and he's making it clear. You could be tempted to jump ship when the tribulation comes. Don't do it. Endure in the faith. It's, that is so true. I mean, we are, we are tempted to wonder where God is. We're, we're tempted to reject him from resentment because this is not the life that I was owed or promised. We're tempted to tap out when the pressure hits the right spot. Paul knows that it's coming, and he heads it off, and he says, Christian, continue in the faith. Endure. And, and again, this is such a good word for our cultural moment because there are voices culturally who are valorizing and even commodifying leaving the faith, who are encouraging us, who are saying things like, a Jesus who would deny some people sexual intimacy is not the Jesus of the Bible. So rebuild your faith around a Jesus who is more inclusive. And friends, I would say, don't buy it. It is amazing to me how that is the first shoe to drop in the abandonment of the faith. Always. Paul says, endure in tribulation. Hold fast. Do not jump ship. Do not tap out. We must remain faithful, friends. But listen. Our faithfulness is not a white-knuckled, stiff upper lip kind of thing. We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 a few moments ago. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read what Paul says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see what Paul's saying? He's acknowledging that we have reason to lose heart. You do. You have reason to lose heart. He mentions specifically here that our outer selves are wasting away. My right knee and my right shoulder can relate. But he says that our inner self is being renewed day by day by day in hope. Hope for what? an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The thing that enables our faithfulness, what, what enables us to endure, what enables us to bear up under tribulations is the fact that through tribulation comes kingdom. The promise of the weight of glory beyond comparison. You, you say, what, what is the weight of glory? I don't know. And I don't think Paul could, could parse it out either. But he's saying the weight of something really good is headed your way, Christian. The storybook ending, the forever Easter, kingdom through tribulation. You hear that. It's kingdom through tribulation. On the other side of suffering is glory beyond words, beyond comparison. And isn't it nuts that Paul calls this, these afflictions, light and momentary? Think back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
40 lashes less one. Light and momentary. Getting stoned and left for dead. Light and momentary. Shipwrecked, adrift at sea. Tom Hanks, castaway. Light and momentary. Sleepless night, hunger, thirst, cold, exposure. Light and momentary. Danger from rivers and robbers and Jews and Gentiles at sea. Light and momentary. And I just wonder, like, what can await us if it renders that light and momentary? Christian, the path ahead of you is not easy, but Christian, if you endure, the goal that awaits you is glorious. Now, maybe you hear this and you say, okay, I'm on board with this and I understand what you're trying to say. Are you saying that suffering is therefore a good? Is, is tribulation therefore a good thing? Should we, do, do we want it and do we ask for tribulation? The answer to that is no, we don't. We, suffering is not good and, and it, tri- tribulation is not something that we ask for. Should we obsess over martyrdom? No, by no means. Should we pray for healing and relief from tribulation? Yes, a thousand times yes. Paul models it and the Lord Jesus even models it. Should we pray against persecution for the church? Yes, yes. But is tribulation a part of being a Christian? Yes. Maybe you hear this and you say, but, but doesn't God have a special plan for my life, a plan to prosper me and not to harm me? And the answer is yes, and that includes tribulation. Because God's vision for your prosperity is much bigger than temporal wealth or painlessness. But will those tribulations one day give way to a glory that we cannot even imagine? Yes. And do we follow a Savior who himself experienced tribulation, who can sympathize with our suffering and weakness? Yes. Is the Spirit of Jesus present with us in darkness and hardship? Yes. Yes. A million times. Yes. Friends, the Christian life is Good Friday shaped. The point of our life is not happiness, it's death, then resurrection. The point of life isn't self-actualization, it's kingdom through tribulation. Our lives, our Good Friday, but Sunday is coming, Christian. I don't recognize there's folks from all over the map in this room this morning. What we do at this time in our service is we always take a few moments to just pray and just ask the Lord to move in our midst. Here's how I want us to respond, and this is going to speak to each of us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am just genuinely curious what you make of all of this. The thing that I think is most compelling about the Christian faith is it's not just a call to bear up under tribulation, because bearing tribulation is a reality for every soul alive in some sense, right? Tribulation is the name of the game, this side of the fall. But listen, What makes the Christian faith so compelling to me is that our God knows tribulation firsthand. Jesus is not immune to our affliction. Jesus is not aloof to our suffering. Jesus himself walked through it for us to give us the hope of eternity so that we would believe. And the way that we access that promise of eternity is not through good deeds. It is not through acts of charity. It's not through being sufficiently righteous. It's through belief, offering our lives up in obedience to Jesus receiving the forgiveness that he offers. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I would ask you to do is just to pray. Pray to God. You don't believe in God, pray to God and ask him to just demonstrate himself to be strong and real to you. 
I'd also imagine that there are many folks who are here this morning who are completely burdened with tribulations and who are asking themselves things like, has God forgotten me? Is God overlooking me? I'd say, no, God has good purposes for you and rest assured that this is the path that we're called to take, cross, then resurrection. You have not slipped through the cracks of God's attention and Jesus is near to us in hardship. Jesus knows this hardship firsthand and you may wonder about his purposes for you, but do not wonder about his love or his wisdom. But I want to encourage you to pray in the next few minutes is just bring your burdens to the Lord Jesus and ask for strength to bear him. And Jesus is kind and merciful to meet us in our need. And then for each of us, I want to read from the Apostle Paul one last time. This comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Paul, writing to Christians, said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Watch this. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Kingdom through tribulation. And then, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever hardship we're experiencing, whatever tribulations we are in the thick end, Paul says, don't even get out the scale. It's not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Our suffering will prove itself to be as substantial as a wisp of smoke when we encounter the density of the glory of God in eternity. Christian, the path ahead of us is not an easy one, but the goal that we are striving to is glorious. Would you pray that he would give you a vision to see that and give you a hope for that? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see the things that are unseen and that our lives would be directed towards those things that are eternal. Would you, would you enable us to not be choked out by the temporal things and to not be choked out by the cares and the pressures and the trials of this world? Would you give us just a, a deep longing and an ache for the glory that is to be revealed? And would you give us strength, Lord Jesus, as we follow you and Jesus, I, I recognize that there are people in this room who are in situations that are significantly di more difficult than my own. And in many ways, it is more difficult for them to be a Christian than it is for me in their workplace and their family dynamics, whatever that might be. And I pray for strength for them, for clarity and wisdom on how to be faithful to you in those situations. And we pray, Lord Jesus, once again, that for our friends who are here who are not believers, that you would open their heart and allow them to see the glory of the gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.